You're listening to the Covenant Original Series, Loveology. Fathers are an often overlooked piece of a healthy family, even though children are most likely to get their perception of God from them. In today's teaching, we'll be talking about the type of love that a father is instructed to have as he leads his family. Hey, we are in week three of uh, this, this series that we've entitled Loveology. Let me hear you just nice and loud say Loveology. Come on now. The study of love, the ology of love. We've been spending a lot of time walking through Scripture and looking through Scripture at, at the different types of love. See, we are, we are American people, so we speak majority, we speak English. And, and so we have to understand that Scripture wasn't written in English, the Old Testament, Hebrew, the New Testament, Greek. And so when we, when we read the word love throughout Scripture, um, for us, we're like, oh, love, that means this, that means that. But the fact of the matter is, there are a couple different types of love mentioned throughout Scripture that oftentimes aren't translated the best for us. So what we're doing is taking time, taking this study of love, and we're talking about it. Week one, we talked about eros. Let me hear you say eros. Eros, eros is this passionate love, right? This physical, romantic love shared between a husband and a wife. We talked about that. Last week, we spent time talking about a love that's, that's more attuned to a friendship which scripture calls phileo, so phileo type of, of love, a friendship type of love. And today, we are opening up talking about this word, storge. Turn to your neighbor and just say, storge. If you really want to get creative with it, you, you can just roll the R and it sounds good. Just try it again and say, storge. Try that. Not as many takers, that's fine. Um, so yeah, and storge is a love that is, that is best described as, as like a, a familial love, like, like, a, like a love demonstrated from a parent to a child, or for our circumstances today, a father to a son, a father to a daughter, a father to a child. Now, I'm a father, and, and I'm sure you probably do get tired of me talking about um, the craziness which is my house. My wife and I, we have five kids um, one of the things that, that I like to do as a father and, and my wife as a mother, um, we have like this tradition, Sunday nights. We, we get some pizza and we watch National Geographic. We watch animal shows. This is kind of like our family tradition. It's definitely our family night. And uh, I think it's awesome. We, we try to introduce our children to the real life through, through animal violence. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gateway. And... Um, I mean, you got to admit, it's pretty awesome when your daughter says, Dad, can we watch the one about the lions just tearing up the zebras? I'm like, yeah, that's my girl, right? Like, that's an exciting thing to me. A couple weeks ago, we watched uh, a National Geographic specifically geared towards animals that mimic other things. And I thought this was going to be really boring, right? This is one of them that I didn't get to choose, right? This is one that somebody else got to choose. And they're like, oh, let's watch this one. And I was like, are you sure? There's so many other better ones, you know? But we watched it. And it turned out to be awesome. In fact, I learned some stuff. Um, did you know that a raven is considered a mimic? A raven can, can sit on a fence post and can open its mouth and sound just like, imitate just uh, another bird of prey. So maybe a hawk or a... Uh, a pterodactyl, I don't know, whatever it might be, it can, imitate, it can imitate a larger bird of prey, hence scaring off other animals. Another weird thing that a raven can do, it can imitate, it can mimic the barking of a dog. 
And it's, yeah, it's crazy. It sounds just like it. It sounds like kind of like a, a wimpy German shepherd. It really like, like, a little, like a little tentative German shepherd. It really does sound like it. It's, it's amazing. Another, another animal in the animal kingdom that mimics is, is the octopus. Really kind of cool. An octopus can, can mimic the movements of a fish as it like kind of swims through the water. And it does this because it attracts larger prey that would want to eat uh, a smaller fish. And then the octopus is like, ha, ah, gotcha, not a fish. And then it eats it. Pretty amazing. Um, it, can almost, it can also mimic a rock or, or coral. And it goes and almost kind of like bonds to this rock or coral. And, and the texture and the color of the octopus change. And it mimics it perfectly. Last but not least is the mighty caterpillar. <laughs> now, I saw the raven, I saw the octopus, and I was like, these are awesome. And they're like, next on our list of animals that mimic is a caterpillar. And I was like, pass. Seen that? Boring. Really, that's how I thought about this caterpillar. Turned out to be the craziest of all. Turned out to be the, my most favorite animal, insect. It's, it's crazy. Uh, because I'm looking at a screen where I know that there's a caterpillar, but I can't find the caterpillar. You know what I mean? Like, it perfectly blended with a branch. It was so crazy. And, and they even showed how a caterpillar mimics the movement of a leaf when it's in the wind. And it just sways just ever so gently. It was amazing. Animals throughout the animal kingdom uh, take on this form of mimicry or imitating so that they can survive. And and that's what animals do, but, 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 but we as humans in the, the human kingdom, I guess, we mimic as well. We truly do. We, we have a different way of mimicking. Our mimicking is, is the behaviors. Maybe we, we tend to base our behaviors or thought patterns as adults on how we were trained and raised as children. And, and so we end up mimicking what was demonstrated to us when you, we were younger, whether it's children or teenagers or, or young adults. And, and oftentimes we mimic these things, a lot of the times unbeknownst even to ourselves. And, and we think that, that we are doing these things and thinking these thoughts naturally when most likely we, they're actions and thoughts that have been that have been learned growing uh, as we get older. And, and I'm not just talking about simple things, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm talking about complex, deep thought patterns and actions, behaviors, not just simple things, not just like, how do you take your coffee? Well, I, two creamers and a sugar, just like my dad, you know, and just like my dad's dad. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about like thoughts like, or, or speech, like what do you think of the rival sports team? Well, I, in our house, we do this, and... I'm talking about things that are a lot deeper. How we were raised and the love that, that we were shown or the love that we were not shown by those who raised us sets us up and sets in motion two specific things. And I want you to write these down. Number one is this, two specific things. Number one, how we view our God and two, how we view ourselves. How we were raised and, and who loved us and how they loved us or, or didn't love us sets in motion two thoughts for us. How we view our God and how we view ourselves. Storge 
is this Greek word found in scripture that, that means a, a bonded love, right? A familial love expressed from a father and a child. Storge is not based on desire. So eros is a love that's really based and rooted in desire, right? Like it's this, it's this intimate love. It's this, it's this love expressed between a husband and a wife. It is a strong desire, but storge, not so. And, and this is a little bit difficult maybe to translate if you've not yet experienced the birth of one of your children or, or adopted a child. It, it's difficult to maybe kind of put this into words because having a baby, let's just be honest, having a baby is crazy. Would you agree with that? It's insane. And, and, and can I just say this, by the way? Let me get this off my chest. Why is it that I, I, I feel like there's more of a preparation to adopt an animal than have a baby? Can I be honest? Like, it's really crazy when you go to adopt, like, a Labrador or, like, some kind of dog, and they're like, all right, sir, we need to run your background check, and we need to do this, and they're like, all right, well, we're almost ready to release this puppy into your home, but first off, we've got a question. Looks like you got a speeding ticket when you were 17. What's that about? Uh, we can't allow a dog to be in an unsafe home. Whereas in a hospital, when you have a baby, this is what happens. You have a baby, and then you leave with a new human. It's the craziest thing. Am I, am I lying? You, you literally, you have a child and then you like hang out for a while. Then you put a child in a car and you're now driving home with a little mini you in the back seat. It's crazy. Nope. And you have no idea what to do. You get home and you're, you look at your wife and you're like, what do we do? And she's like, I don't know. Like, maybe, maybe we should feed it. I think they eat. Let's, let's feed it. And then you do. And you're like, well, what's next? You're like, I don't know. It's sleeping. Let's just, let's just leave it alone for a while. Maybe I'll just sleep. And then you call your mom. Mom, how long do they sleep? Oh, let me tell. It's insane that you even get to take home a baby. It's just crazy. But that's what we do. And something amazing happens, doesn't it? Like you go from your wife being, being pregnant and, and having this, this belly that has a life inside of it. She has like these superhuman powers to grow a person inside of her. It's crazy. And you go from that to now all of a sudden you're holding this child, this life, this chubby ball of goo that's your baby. It's amazing. And something happens. You, you truly you bond with this baby. You bond with your son. You, you bond with your daughter in a way that's deeper th than just an emotion, in a way that's deeper than desire. In fact, I would say that storge is, is love at its most, most basic, love at its most purest. It is a bond that will always be there. Come High or low, difficult or easy, mountaintops or valleys, you're bonded with this, this child. This is the love. This is the store, J, that Scripture speaks of. In fact, look at this verse found in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Are we ready to hear God's word today? Say yes if you're ready. Yes? Okay. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says this. See. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, and would you read those last three words with me, that we should be called children of God. See what kind of love that the Father 
has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Then in 1 John, rather John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, some of my favorite scripture, it says this. But to all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus now, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, he being God, he gave the right to become, read this with me, what does it say? Children of God. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's the craziest thing. For those of us who have placed our, our hope, our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ, for those of us who have said, I believe that, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he said he is, he died and rose again. For those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, the craziest thing happens. We are reborn into God's family. We're born, we're adopted in, we're reborn into God's family. We get to call God our Father. We get to call God the, the God of the universe. He calls us his sons. He calls us his daughters. It, it's amazing. And while this is, this is true, right, how we are raised or how we were raised speaks into our view of that God, does it not? So for some of us, coming to Jesus, accepting Christ, and, and gaining God as our Father, it's a scary thing. I've mentioned this before. But our, he, our earthly fathers shape largely our view of our heavenly Father. Let me give you an example. If, if your father, uh, if you were raised with a father who was quite the disciplinarian, heavy-handed, very strong, made you work for love, earn your love, uh, studies will show that a lot of time your, your view of God is going to be the same. God is a God who makes you earn his love, that you can never really truly earn this, this love, that God is never fully satisfied or pleased with you, that God is angry with you most of the time. Maybe for you, your, your father was a little more lenient, a little more passive, right? Kind of brushed it underneath the rug. It's, it's all good. It's okay, man. It's, ah, don't worry about it, right? Your view might be one of God that, that he's more lenient or passive towards sin. God doesn't think it's a, bad, it's a big deal. It's all right. It's, it's cool. It's not a big deal. Or, or maybe, maybe your view of your father is tainted because you were raised without a father. How many absent father uh, homes do we see in America today? Many. And listen, an absent father isn't just a father who, who splits and is gone. A lot of us are absent fathers because of our work, because of our priorities, because of addictions, because of our relationships, because of our sin, whatever it might be. You can be an absent father and still be present. Amen? Can you, can, would you agree? Yes? Yeah. And so for many of us, our view of God the Father, our Heavenly Father, is shaped by an absentee father. So we grow up and, and our dad's not around and, and we wonder, we wrestle, we struggle with God because we say things like, I don't really sense him. I don't really feel him. I wonder if he's there. I wonder if he hears me. And deep inside of that is this question, does God even really care? Is he going to stick around? Earthly fathers largely shape the view for us, for our Heavenly Father. But here's the truth. Not only does it shape the view of God, a father has the ability. Now listen now, this is very important. A father has the ability to speak into their child's 
identity. A father has the unique gifting, capability, opportunity, expectation, whatever it might be, to speak into and largely shape their child's identity, what we think of ourselves, how we talk to ourselves. Now, even as adults, what we think we're capable of doing, the things we're capable of not doing, largely has to do with our fathers. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people. It's, it's a great honor and a great privilege. One of the questions that I ask oftentimes is, when you look in the mirror, what do you tell yourself about yourself? When you view yourself, what do you see? Who do you see? We're going to get to more of that in a minute. But before that, I want to read you this incredible passage. Colossians chapter 3 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. As fathers, we have the unique ability to speak into the identity that our children have. I wonder this morning, are we encouraging or discouraging our sons and daughters? Have we taken on the role of being a father so seriously that we understand that we are, that we are shaping our children's identities, who they believe themselves to be? Our identity is heavily steeped in the storge of our fathers. I love, I love that. I love the way that sounds, don't you? Our identity is heavily steeped in the storge of our fathers. A couple years ago, my wife and I, <clears throat> we, bought, we bought like a little farm, which is the best and worst decision that we've ever made, by the way. Because one of the things I learned about having a farm is that things just don't, like, happen. Like, I kind of imagined, like, we'd get there and just, like, pumpkins would grow or corn would just sprout up or just a tractor would appear or the garden would be, or there would be, like, I just imagined, like, I would wake up and be like, ah, oh, what a beautiful morning. No, didn't happen. Uh, Exactly the opposite. It's a lot of hard work. But I also found out this, a a little into purchasing that property. We have some farmers that surround us. And uh, one of my favorite guys, one of my neighbors, he came over, overalls, no shirt, uh, classic farmer. He came over. He's like, uh, you do know you got some uh, apple, apple trees out on the back, my back of your property there. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You take care of those. You trim some of those branches to get you some good apples. And I was like, that's awesome. And in my mind, I'm thinking, fantastic. I'll take a barrel over, pick apples and force my wife to make applesauce. This is gonna be a great day. Didn't happen. In fact, when we went over there to look at these apple trees, we had missed them because they're so grown over and, and they're tiny. They're like, I didn't, they didn't look like apples. Um, and I was like convinced, no, these are gonna be great anyway. And I took one off and took a bite of it and it was so gross, I can't even tell you. It was incredibly sour. And so we began to study apology. We became apologists. We just... We began to study it hardcore. How do you grow an apple tree, and, and how do you make sure they're all good? These are older apple trees, so we had to put in some different care, and, and we found out, well, here's how you trim an apple tree. So, so we looked that up, and we found out what to do, and we, we kind of cut back some of the dead branches and everything, and, but that year, they just didn't really grow much. They just kind of fell off the tree and, like, mushed on the ground. 
The next year, we, we found out, okay, maybe it's good to spray the, the leaves and spray the trees, and, and maybe that will help produce a better fruit, because it's all about the fruit, right? Like, you want to get a fat old apple. That's what you want. You want a shiny, fat apple that you can just take a bite into and just say, I grew this. It's beautiful. Well, guess what? Didn't happen that year. The apples were, were a little bit larger and a little bit sweeter, but still pretty disgusting. And uh, so at this point in time, we're kind of like, well, maybe our apples just don't grow. But then we discovered this crazy story of, of these people who were growing apple trees. And they, were, they had trimmed branches and sprayed the branches and sprayed the leaves and sprayed the fruit. But the result was lackluster, to say the, work, to say the least. And so what they had did was they had found out that it really has less to do with the fruit and more to do with the roots. And so what they did was they started over time transplanting all the soil. They would take out slowly the soil that these roots and these apple trees were planted in, and they would put in new soil, better soil. And they would till the soil in until all of a sudden, one year, these trees just naturally started growing bigger, healthier, sweeter apples. I want you to understand in your life, your identity is less about the fruit and more about the roots. I had the incredible honor of speaking with one of my friends this last week who's running through some very difficult stuff. And she pointed to begin, she, she began to point out these different areas. And what she's talking about is her, her identity. These indicators of her identity is what we called them. And she went down through this list because I said, well, who do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see when you see yourself? What's the running dialogue inside your head that's, that's, that's going? What is it saying? And my friend, she began to weep. She began to cry. It obviously hurt her. When I look in the mirror, I don't like what I see. I don't like who I am. And she wrote out this list of these words which were hurtful and harmful and broke my heart. And I just began to wonder how many of us feel the same way. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Many of us, if we're honest, we don't like what we see. Many of us, if we're honest, don't look at a mirror. You ever been shopping with somebody who's really skinny and good looking? You ever, been, you ever done that? I hate that, because you go with them, and they, like, oh, hold on, here's a mirror. I've got to get perfect again, right? And meanwhile, here I am, like, okay, just get, tell me when we're to, you know, to whatever, TJ Maxx. All right, and we're just walking by mirror, because we don't like what we see. For many of us, we don't like what we see when we look at ourselves. And maybe it has nothing to do with our looks, but maybe it has everything to do with something deeper, our identity. Maybe when you look in the mirror, you see a failure. Maybe when you look in the mirror, you see somebody who's not good enough. Maybe when you look in the mirror, you hear your father's voice saying, you are a disappointment. A couple weeks ago, had a one-sided conversation with one of my sons. One-sided conversations usually don't go very well in my house. I was frustrated, I was angry. Some stuff had taken place, not a big deal, but I was frustrated and angry, and it was late. It had held up bedtime, and now everybody's tired and cranky, and here I am venting and letting it all out on my son. Have you been there? And I made this statement. I looked at him, and I said, you know what? Get out of this room. I don't want to see your face 
tonight. And I could just see like the blood drained from my son's face. I could just see his shoulders like go down. As he walked out of this room, my wife looked at me and said, Travis, you better go get that boy. You are the image of God to him. You ever been there? And then you have to take the slow walk, <laughs> the walk of shame, where you know your wife's right. And you walk over, and I, and I got down on one knee, and I said, buddy, I'm dad, sorry. I should not have spoke to you that way. And I saw in his eyes that, that it wasn't that he felt like he had disappointed me. It's that he felt like he was a disappointment. Do you know what I mean? Have you been there? Those are identity-defining moments. The words that we give to our children as fathers will ring throughout their lives. I can take you to moments in my life where I can hear what my father said to me when I was six, seven, eight, nine, and I still hear that voice now when I'm trying to accomplish things, do things, build things, move things. We have the opportunity to build into our children's identity. This is a very dangerous thing, isn't it? Would you agree? This can be a very dangerous thing, but it's also an incredible opportunity. So as we read about these people who are digging and tilling up this dirt and putting in new soil and making these new apples, it's amazing because there's still other people who are just spraying the fruit. And maybe the fruit for you is, is that you don't feel accepted. And so what do you do? You go out and you, you meet with a therapist. You meet with a counselor who says, well, why don't you feel accepted? And when's the last time you felt accepted? And how would you like to feel accepted? And we spend money and we go to a seminar on being accepted. And, and then we read a book and we buy a book and people write books. And the problem is at the end of the day, all we've ever tried to work on is the fruit. And even if you work on the fruit and get the fruit good, it's not the answer. The answer isn't in the fruit. The answer is in the root. And if we don't get the roots right, if we don't get the, the foundation correct, then the fruit is always going to be broken. And what I'm trying to say is your identity needs to be rooted in the storge of your heavenly father. Your identity needs to come from the one who loves you the most. See, if I'm your enemy, if I'm trying to break you down, if I'm trying to, like, defeat you, guess what I'm going to attack? The things that you put your most trust in. So if you pull your identity from being a great salesman, if you pull your identity from your looks, if you pull your identity from, from your marriage, I'm a husband, I'm a father, that's who I am. Well, guess what? Those are all things that can be taken from you. And if those things are taken from you, who are you now? Sure, you're a husband now, but what happens if you're not later? Sure, you have money now, but what happens, happens when that's taken from you? And so what often happens is we go through these things in our life where these things where we placed our trust, found our identity, are ripped away from us, and now we don't know who we are. Sound familiar? Don't know who we are. Rather, pull your identity from Storge of the Father, the love of God, the Father, because it is the one thing that can never change. Are you with me, church? It is the one thing that will never, ever change. 
God's love for you has always been consistent. And listen, I understand that your view of God may be tainted or shaded by your earthly father. I get that. But, but understand, your earthly father is still a human. He is not perfect. You need to overload how you feel with truth. Can I just give you a little bit of a, a point here? Your feelings are not truth. If they were, they would be called True things. I don't even know. Truthies. They would just be called truth. They're called feelings for a reason. Well, I feel them. You're like, feelings? That does not compute. Okay, you're a man. I get that. Okay? Think about the last time the Buckeyes won an Ohio, you know, a championship football game. You're like, oh, those. Those are feelings. Yes, those are feelings. We have those. We are given to the, given those. But feelings don't necessarily mean truth. And so when you look in the mirror, are you with me still today? Yes? Are you with me? You got to let me know sometimes. Okay. When you look in the mirror and you see yourself and you say, you are not good looking. You are not wanted. My wife left me. My husband doesn't want me. My children are angry at me. You didn't amount to what you were supposed to. These people are mad at you. They're right. You're fat. You're no good. You fill in the blank. Understand that those are feelings. But an identity rooted in the storage of our Father doesn't waste time with feelings, it delves into truth. And so you say, well, how do I overcome this mirror view of myself? How do I overcome these feelings? How do I overcome? And in essence, what you're asking me is, how do I create a new identity? And that's the real question. You must have an identity rooted in God and his love for you, which means you must begin overloading your feelings with truth. Because it doesn't really matter what you feel about something if the truth about it is different. Case in point, if I go stand in front of a train and have a feeling like it's going to stop, doesn't change the truth that that is not going to happen. Amen? If I have a feeling like, hey, if I uh, just go walk up to the White House, the president's going to want to talk to me. That doesn't change the truth of that that's not going to happen. There are feelings and then there are truths. So we have to overload our feelings with our truth. And when it comes to our identity, we need to be informed by what God says about us, who we are according to Scripture, rather than how we feel or what we've been mimicking our whole life through our upbringing. Are you with me? So let me show you what that means. Ephesians 2, and listen to these verses. Ephesians 2 says this. We are God's masterpiece. Your identity should be fueled and filled by that. You know what your father says about you? You're my masterpiece. You are my greatest creation. Apart from what he says, apart from what they did, apart from how he broke your heart or she broke your heart, listen, listen, no, 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 no. You are a masterpiece. First Peter 2 says you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Do you know how God views you? God views you as royalty. Let me ask you, when's the last time you looked in the mirror and puffed out your chest a little bit because you realized you were looking at royalty? When's the last time you viewed yourself like that? 
Huh? That's how God views you. That's where your identity should be based. Can you see why this would bear a little bit different fruit than just looking in and being like, oh, what's wrong with me today? God views you as royalty. He says a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. In 1 Corinthians, it says, you are a part of God's body. He loves us so much. Not only does he make us his own, but he makes us a part of his his body. We are a part of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, we read this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. God loves us so much, loves you so much, that while you were yet sinning, God sent Jesus to demonstrate his love to die for you. God bought you. Is anybody alive today? Is anybody thankful for the, for the loving nature, the storge of our Father? Anybody at all? This is where we get our identity. You don't get your identity from the Kardashians. You don't get your identity from that crappy 14-year-old boyfriend that you still think about now as a 43-year-old woman. You don't get your identity from your absent father who wasn't around. Do not let that form your identity. Don't let that voice speak to you through the mirror. There is a love that is greater. There is a love that is stronger. There is a greater storge waiting for you when you reach out and grab it. Coming from your heavenly father who says you are a work of art, my greatest creation. You are royalty. You are perfect. You are beautiful. You are wanted. You are loved. I bought you with a price. There's no distance that I wouldn't run to get you. Let your identity be formed from that. Don't you allow anybody or anything else to create who you are and who you say you are and what you say to yourself about yourself. Too many of us, man, we, we work out our issues for our whole lives. When the issue is settled with God. I love this passage in Isaiah 49, 16. It says, see, this is God speaking. He says, see, I've inscribed you in the palm of my hands. How beautiful is that? I think of you. I pray for you. You know, Scripture says that Jesus prays for us. Our God prays for us. What kind of God is this? I'll tell you what kind of God. It's a God that we can pull our identity from. It's a God that we can trust our identity with. 2 Corinthians 6 says, I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Galatians 3.26, it says, For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons and daughters of God. And then my favorite is Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.4. It says this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, some of us get it twisted. We think that, that the love of God, the storge of God, our Father, is based on what we've done or what we have yet to do. But this passage, this truth outweighs those feelings. Amen? Come on. This passage, this truth, Scripture being truth, outweighs those feelings and disproves that. Doesn't it? Amen? Yes? Because it says before you even had the opportunity 
to do something good before you even had the opportunity to screw it all up. I knew you. I chose you. I loved you. I planned for you. I made plans for you. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the storage that our Father offers so beautifully, gracefully, and freely. See, our identity oftentimes is shaped and formed with this idea, from this idea, that we have to earn somebody's love. That when we do something more, that we, when we do something better, we'll, we'll like the image that we see in the mirror. Our identity will get better. But the fact of the matter is, the issue with identity is settled within the storage of our God. Because there is nothing that you could do. There's nothing that you could say that could make our Heavenly Father love you any more or any less than He currently does. Now let that sink in for a moment. If tomorrow you sold everything you had and moved to the center of Africa and gave your life to missions work and saw revival sweep through the continent, God would not love you any more than He does right now. If at some point in your life there was to be failure and you drop the ball and you do something significant, understand God's love for you does not change. There's nothing that you could do to make him fall in love with you more or nothing you could do to make him pull away from, from you with his love. He loves you perfectly. That's the storage of a good father. He is a good father. Amen. He is a great father. And it is where we need to pull our identity from. It's the only place that we should be pulling our identity from. You begin transplanting that dirt. You begin transplanting that soil. You dig out the old soil. You start putting in God's word. You dig out the old soil. You start putting in, in, in scripture that talks about your identity. Scripture that says you are a masterpiece. You are a chosen generation. Generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I've called you. You start putting in that soil and you watch what kind of fruit starts falling off the vine. You watch what kind of fat apples you start getting. You taste how sweet those are. You taste how delicious they become. Stop attacking the fruit. Stop trying to spray the fruit and get down to the roots. Draw your identity from the storge of the Father who has loved you before you were even born, who loved you and knew you before you were even a thought in your parents' mind, before the foundations were even created, before the stars were formed, before the oceans were laid, before the very first man took his breath. God knew you, called you, loved you. Thanks for listening to this message from Covenant Church. For more information on our ministries or to hear more messages just like this, visit us at covenantchurch.us.